Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The passage is also on the outline in your bulletin. We are in the second half now of this great chapter, chapter 3. And we come to the second prayer of Paul in this book already. It's as though he's writing these truths that the Lord has laid upon his heart to teach to us, uh, the church, God's children. And he has to pause at times to ask God to help us all understand everything he's saying. There's just so much depth to it. There's just so much richness to what he is describing in this letter. In the first chapter, he begins with our justification, uh, being right before God because of Christ, God's choosing of us for this, all of God's grace, our adoption as sons and daughters of God through Christ. And it's just so heavy that he has to pause, pause at the beginning of uh, the book in chapter 1, and he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. In other words, the stuff I'm telling you, you can't grasp without God helping us. And he says in chapter 1 also, praying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So that's the first time in the book he had to pray to help us grasp the truths we are reading. Now, this is the second time in chapter 3. More has come forth by way of revelation. We are aware of the mystery of the gospel that Paul reveals, that God is calling a people to himself, a new community, a new race, a new humanity redeemed by Christ. No longer the old divisions do they matter. Jews and Gentiles, that doesn't matter any longer. The mystery is he's taken down that, that wall between the two and united us in Christ. And he's building us into a holy temple that's made of living stones. And you all, brothers and sisters, are living stones in this temple that God is making. And it's so glorious that Paul has to stop again. And that's the passage that we have before us. And I will begin at verse 14. I'll read to verse 21. That's the whole of the prayer. But our main focus today will be verses 14 through 19. Please hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, it seems that we can never fully grasp the totality of your love for us in Christ, at least not this side of glory. But, O oh Lord, if we could improve in our grasp of your love for us in Christ just a little bit this day, how blessed we would be how empowered we would be for peace and joy, for obedience and service. Lord, please send your spirit to strengthen us 
in our understanding of your love for us in Christ so that we might be deepened in our love for you. Your love for us makes all the difference in the universe and in eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The prayer that I just prayed is the so-called prayer for illumination that we think of in traditional preaching terms, that it's a time for the pastor to pause and pray for God to help us understand what will now be said. Normally, I write that prayer every Sunday morning. Uh, That's the last thing I do before I come to the first service is to write that prayer. It's a prayer that I craft after becoming more sure of the meaning of the passage. This prayer, like the one I just prayed, asks God to help us be strengthened spiritually. That's the prayer that Paul prays, you might notice. I'm praying the same thing for us as we study this passage, for a deeper understanding of God's love for us in Christ. That's the specific focus of Paul's prayer. He's asking, after all this revelation of the great marvelous salvation of Christ, the mystery of the gospel revealed, the new creation, the new community, the new race of people, the redeemed people, the holy temple of God, the living temple of God, and he's asking the Lord for us to grasp this love that Christ has for us. Because this is where it all comes down in the Christian life. For all the details we study, and we should study them, for all the deep doctrines that are revealed, our sense for God's love for us in Christ compels us to love him back, and it completely alters the whole outlook and demeanor and color of your life. It's, you could say it's the meaning of life, is to love God. He loves us, and then we love him in Christ. And Paul wants the reader to grasp or comprehend this love that God has for us in Christ. Because when we are secure about God's affection for us, our affections for him grow, and they become more powerful and more impacting. They color the whole of our lives comprehending, or you could say appreciating, maybe grasping. Comprehending sometimes just means understanding a concept. This is more heartfelt. Fathoming the love of Christ. Comprehending the love of Christ releases us to glorify and enjoy him. This is what we're seeking from knowing God better, to love him more. And this is what Paul wants for the reader to understand. Paul knew the importance of loving Christ, knowing God's love for us and loving him. Because greater love means greater power. The love that motivates us is the power that actually drives us. What you love, what your affection is toward, is the thing you're thinking about right now. Or it's where you spend your time. You're talking about it a lot. So wherever your affections are, this is where you'll pursue. So the more we love God and Christ the more we'll pursue him. And where we learn to love him is starting with his love for us. Could not be more essential than what I'm talking to you about today that Paul prays for in this prayer. The power for spiritual change, which is what we know is the most important change, it's found in the affections of the heart. The love that motivates us is the power that drives us. Only an overwhelming affection for God will produce an overcoming power to defeat sin. Put another way, what, love, what we love motivates and enables our actions. We know this is true. 
This is the essence of Paul's second prayer now that we look at in Ephesians. That God would grant us, that he would grant you, brothers and sisters, to know his love for you in Christ. The prayer itself is a guide for our way of seeking to know and love God better. We see it played out the way the apostle prays. Look first at verse 14. You'll see first in his opening statement that growing in God's love starts with a right approach to God. We have to approach him first in the right way to understand his love for us and then grow in our love for him. Verse 14, Paul prays, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father for this reason. This is a reference back to what he has been building up in this book so far. For this reason. This is what prompts him or or causes him to pray or to go to God. For this reason is about the basis for the prayer that he was uttering. And you'll notice that the basis for this prayer is the knowledge that God gives about his purpose in salvation. He reminds of how we're saved by resting in Christ's finished work, but he's also revealing a mystery that God is creating a holy temple unto himself made of living stones who are redeemed sinners, all of us. That's the basis for him saying, for this reason, in light of what God's doing. But his posture tells you something else about what he understands. The posture for his prayer, it shows a reverence and a humility and an understanding that this is all of God's sovereign grace shown to him. So his very posture shows how powerful the basis is for the prayer that he's praying. And this is why it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This is the right way to approach God for all of us. Approach with humility, with reverence, with awe, with appreciation for what he has done for us in Christ. We know this, so we come to him on that basis. The mystery that God has revealed through the Apostle Paul, this new humanity, described as a new temple. It's a beautiful picture that he gives to us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He hears this or learns this wonderful revelation about our salvation, about what God's doing and his purpose, and he can't help but to drop to his knees and lift this prayer. This spontaneous reaction to God's great salvation in the apostle is a great picture for us in how we should approach God, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, you all know that it is possible and you should pray to God in all sorts of postures. You can talk to your Father in heaven any which way. You can do so sitting. You could do so standing. You could do so walking. You could even do so lying. We tell our children rightly that they can speak to their Father in heaven any time because of what Christ Christ has purchased for them in access to the throne. There are some times, though, and we see it in Scripture, there's nothing else you can do but drop to your knees. And after reading the first couple chapters of Ephesians, if I just read it to us right now, I bet we would just feel like dropping to our knees and praising God for everything he has revealed there. Kneeling is his right reaction in this case. Sinclair Ferguson gives great commentary on this portion of scripture, and he said, his kneeling, Paul's, is not a formal religious habit but the deep instinct of someone who senses that the only appropriate position before this great God is to lower oneself before him in admiration and awe. So the approach to God is important as we learn more of his love for us in how to love him in return or what would cause us to love him more. We come with this humility and the posture of Paul's body in this case is an outward reaction 
to an inward reality about God's greatness, God creating a great new temple. What a thing to praise God about for the apostle. The Lord was really doing it. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He understood the significance of the Jewish temple, how it was supposed to point people to God. It was supposed to show his presence. And now to have this revelation that the gospel has opened up the way for everyone on earth, all tribes and tongues, to come to him. And the way that people would look and know where God is is they would see God's people. This is that mystery revealed. It's an interesting parallel because in the Old Testament, when the first temple was being built, the, the one that was severely limited, not like the holy temple that's the church, but it was still important in its time because it was st- another part of the picture of what God was going to do in sending Christ. The first temple was that. And so King Solomon oversaw the final stages of the first temple being built. And it's a sign of his covenant faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness, to give them the ability to build this magnificent building. But I want you to notice what happens at the dedication of that temple. Upon seeing the temple, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had it set in the court, and he stood on it. Now, he's seeing God fulfill this promise of building the temple so all the nations would know that their God's the real God. Then it says this about Solomon. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He was praising God for God's covenant faithfulness. Now, we move uh, these many years later, some thousand years later, and here's the Apostle Paul witnessing the salvation of sinners from all tribes and tongues starting to be built into the holy temple of God. And he is so moved to pray. He says, for this reason in verse 14, when he sees the new holy temple, like Solomon did with the old one, I bow my knees before the Father. Because of what God had done in Christ and revealed to Paul, and made, it made Paul bow down in prayer. His approach to God is with total humility. And it says in verse 15, with reference to his sovereignty over every human being who has ever lived, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Everyone is under his lordship, and he's moved by this God of the universe, and he bows down to ask something from him. This is the right way to approach God. It doesn't have to look identical to this in our posture, in the exact wordings, but it's the demeanor. It's the the knowledge of who we are going to. What's the petition of his prayer? And We move to the second point. What is Paul asking for in this prayer? Verse 16 and verse 17 has several petitions we should look at. We see him seeking for God to strengthen their faith. The people of God need their faith bolstered. We believe but help our unbelief. We believe but we forget quickly or we get shaky fast. So Paul's praying that God would strengthen you and I in our faith in Christ because this will lead us to knowing of his love in loving him in return. And notice that Paul asks God for something that's pretty magnificent when you think of how weak we are. And he does so on the basis of verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. God is capable of granting this magnificent request. That's not true of many of the requests we ask of people. Um, There's lots of things we ask, and really the people we're asking uh, to provide something for, they can't provide it. You know, uh, many years ago, when um, I, we just 
We had three children at this time, all under the age of five, three little boys. And I had the monumental task of watching them for one whole day. My wife would teach music at Westminster at that time, and I was home with them. And so I didn't know, what, what do you do with kids all day? I know, but I started to think, what can I do to maybe do some fun stuff or, you know, keep them at bay because it wouldn't take long before they would completely overtake everything that was happening, these three little under five-year-old boys. So I discovered at that time they had just built Cabela's up near the Legends. Perfect. Uh, Once we get going in the morning, we'll wait a little while, and I can kill a couple hours by taking them up to Cabela's. And so what I would do is load them in the truck, and even the ride up, they'd stay pretty calm when we were driving. I'd have the car seats all loaded up. It'd take forever to do everything like you all know, those of you who are in that phase of life. Sorry. But at any rate, at that time, that was my plan. I'd get up to Cabela's, put them in the shopping cart, and then I'd have a tour I would go through in Cabela's. And as I would go through, I would start with the aquarium. We'd go through and see the elephant getting taken down by the lion. They love that every time. And then we'd move over to the other side and I'd look at the archery equipment. Then we'd go to the mule deer museum and check it out. We'd see the moose that's right there at the bridge. Then we'd take the elevator up and I would go to the shooting gallery for a little while. I'd do some practice shooting. When AJ got old enough at five, he would start shooting a little bit too. The other two just were in the car seat. But they watched it, and they liked it, and they liked the, the different things. You'd light up, and the piano player would start pian- playing. And then we'd end up eating donuts in the cafeteria. What a father. I mean, just think of all the things that we were accomplished at that time. And so they're thinking, I am just the most benevolent, can give any amount of fun anyone can have. And as we'd walk out in the warmer weather, AJ would see the ATVs over there. And he'd want to go sit on them and pretend to drive them and so forth. And, and we're, he'd get on them, and he'd, Daddy, can we have one of these? Can we have one of these? Can we have one of these? Can-? And he kept asking, son. I have no capacity to get you one of those. We don't have the money for one of those. We can't get, he get in the boat. Can we get a, no, we can't get a boat. We're in Kansas, by the way. I can't get a boat. I can't, I don't have, and uh, they ask with such sincerity that I could give that, but I just can't. I'd love to, but I can't. And sometimes I think we approach God as though he can't give the things we ask for. And what Paul does in his demeanor is he appeals to God on the basis of what God can give. And he can give this thing, the strengthening of our faith that we need so badly. You think your faith's so weak he can't help you with this. He absolutely can. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Verse 16, that according to, on the basis of, from your riches, according to the riches of your glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. God can give us the spiritual strength we need. Now, I want you to see the specific appeal of Paul. There's at least three things that he appeals for here. Notice what they are. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. There there are three intertwined petitions now. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you be rooted and grounded in love. There's at least three here. Look at the first one in verse 16. What he's praying for God to give us. He prays that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in your inner being. Simply put, he's praying for you and I to be spiritually strong, to be spiritually mature and stable, to be spiritually minded so we can navigate this world as he would have us, which, by the way, will always be for our good and for our joy, even in difficulty. Strengthen us with power through his spirit that God by his Holy Spirit, 
would give us aid to grow spiritually. Now, let me just say at the, at the beginning to understand this. This is not a feeling you have to have to know if it's happening. If you believe in Christ, you know that he has paid for your sins, that his sacrifice pays for your sins, that God accepts that, and you rest in Jesus' work. The only way that has happened is the Holy Spirit of God has given you faith to lay hold. It's something he gives from the beginning and sustains, and Paul is here praying for that to continue, for that to be maintained, for us to recognize it. But that spiritual strength extends beyond just our initial salvation. It extends to everything you need spiritually. It extends to dealing with trials you are dealing with, that you will deal with. Some of you are dealing with serious physical ailments. And this is something that is really ultimately a spiritual battle for one who is in Christ because you will have eternal life. You have it now. But those temporal things, they press upon us. They can make us miserable at times. So we need spiritual strength to see it for what it is in God's sovereign plan, in its temporary nature. Other kinds of trials you may deal with beyond just the physical. Emotional trials. We need spiritual strength to deal with those. We need strength to resist temptation, things that call to us that we know are wrong. We have to have God's strength for this. We cannot conjure it ourselves. We need strength to be a bold witness for Christ in the face of opposition and antagonism. We will need God's aid. It's difficult for us. We can't in our natural person. We need strength, spiritual strength, to clearly proclaim the gospel of Christ as we have opportunity. We need spiritual strength to stand firm rather than to be tossed to and fro. Verse 16, this first petition, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The next petition in verse 17 flows from verse 16, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, when you came to Jesus, God gave you faith to lay hold of Christ. That's God's gift. Now Paul's asking for this to be an ongoing ministry in your life of the Spirit. He's saying it out loud, and it reminds us of what is true, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that God would continue to grow our belief, grow our trust in Christ and his work for us. He's praying here that you would be so filled with Christ that you would live your life through the lens of Jesus in his word. That as you come to know Christ more and about Christ more and what Christ has done, you will grow in your thinking about him in all of life. There won't be some aspect of your life that you detach from what Jesus would want for you in your life or the way he views something in your life. That's a far greater motivation to holiness, by the way, than just like, I'm going to do right or do wrong. Rather than stop and think of the perspective of Christ upon this thing that we're looking at the stability that that brings, that our perspective would always be shaped through the priorities of Jesus, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And brothers and sisters, the only way this really can happen is by availing yourselves of the different tools God gives you to stay growing in Christ. And very simply, he gives us his word that reveals who Christ is, what he has done. His spirit works with his word so we can know and have this in our minds. He gives us the sacraments. We participate in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis as a way of reminding ourselves of this work that Christ has done for us. This is God's ordained way to continue to encourage you about that. And we pray to God in light of this, asking for help, just like we are doing in this prayer that Paul's praying. We have fellowship with one another, with all the saints, 
to talk these things through. One way that I can describe this phenomena of thinking through the lens of Christ, I can compare it to something else that I can relate with recently. For the last several years, I've been doing uh, formal studies, and I've been getting all sorts of books assigned to me, and I've been able to do much pleasure reading, meaning books that don't have to do with my studies or my degree. So about six weeks ago, I finished all my actual formal studies in writing and reading. And so for almost six weeks now, I've been on the side reading uh, things that I've always wanted to read in the last few years that just haven't had time. And so I've started to pick up memoirs of various Civil War generals. I've read portions of Lee, Jackson, Longstreet. Then I've recently been reading Grant and Sherman and Chamberlain. It's been interesting. I'm not saying if I agree with any of these individuals. I'm saying that their leadership decisions and the kinds of things they express and describe are very intriguing to me. And I found myself, when I was in the middle of reading, say, Chamberlain's, who's a guy who got shot like 10 times. He got hit six horses shot out from under him. Um, he was at 20 major battles on the Union side. And then later, he lived a long life. He lived to be in his mid-80s. Most of these guys did not. And he had terrible battle wounds, and he lived into the early 1900s. I was just intrigued by this guy. And everything I found myself doing while I was reading his memoir, I would think through what his life was like and what, how he viewed it. I was even the other day just walking through the cemetery over here. I try to get my 10,000 steps in every day, and I was doing those. And as I was walking, I saw several of the, the dates on there were in the mid-1800s into the early 1900s. I thought that's when Chamberlain lived, exactly. And I, I found myself, because I was reading him, thinking of him, and maybe ways in which he dealt with stuff. He didn't know if he'd ever see his family again. That was a terribly crushing thing. His brother fought alongside him. They almost both died in one battle. I'm just thinking of all the things that they went through that I don't relate with, I don't deal with, they're not my experiences. But for that time, while I'm reading him, I'm thinking of all that. For the Christian, coming to know Christ more will help you think about life the way he would have you think about it. And the beauty of Jesus in this respect, compared to just another person I might read about, is the Holy Spirit actively works to impress upon you the things of Christ, the riches of Christ. So this is a beautiful prayer that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we have understanding about how to enhance in our lives. The third petition that flows through, you'll see still in this second point, it flows from the first two, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. Now, not love just like that mushy, you know, be loving towards everybody, be kind towards one another. Kindness is a fruit of, of, a, of a real kind of love. This is love rooted in the love of Christ. We see that in the next verse and in the final point. So rooted in Christ, rooted in his love. But the prayer is that you and I would be rooted and grounded in love. Now, Paul uses a mixed metaphor here. Rooted and grounded picture two different things, right? Rooted pictures a plant or a tree. It's in botany. Grounded is in architecture. It's in buildings. It's in structures. We are to be rooted and grounded in love. This is the prayer that he has for us. Trees make roots that give the tree on top of the earth strength. You can't see the roots, but they go deep and they feed the tree and they hold the tree up. In the back of the south building, I refer to this tree because it's right there when I'm in the early service. It's a tree that I've told you about. I cut down to the stump 24 years ago. 
That tree now is massive in the back. You would never believe it. I, I wouldn't either, except I cut it myself. And then there are three, three um, trunks that come out of the stump on the bottom. And those three were just little three little sprigs that came out of the stump that I cut. And I remember thinking to myself many times, I need to go cut those off. I need to go cut those off. Talk about procrastination. 24 years later, they're a huge tree now. But that tree, that base on that thing is massive. And the roots are deep. And I've seen many a storm come through the back. And that cottonwood will move, but that tree doesn't go anywhere. Rooted is a, a strong picture of what Paul's praying for you to be. Rooted in the love of God for you. And in return, that we return love to him because of what he's doing for us. Similarly, when you see buildings go up, and they build that, they take forever, it seems, to do the foundation, and then immediately, like two days later, the whole structure's up after it. See that when they build houses all the time. Likewise, grounded, that house is strong on top of its foundation. This is what we have before us in this picture. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. This is all God's doing. Do you see this as well? The salvation we initially receive is from God. He does the work. And then Paul's praying, can you keep it up, Lord? He's praying the right prayer. Lord, you saved me. You did all of it. Keep me. It's a beautiful picture. It's a great benefit we have in God's sovereign grace to us. About ten year, or eight years ago when we moved to the house we live in now, when we got there, someone from our church who lives down the street from us brought us a big plant and walked into the house and put it in the front foyer area that when you walk in. Now, that's fine, except for neither Sherry and I can keep a plant alive for anything. We get fake plants because it's no good. We kill everything we have. So it's great that you're bringing a plant, but then we're feeling bad immediately because we know it's going to die. But then the lady said, don't worry, I'm going to come and water it. And she did. Every few days, knock on the door, and she'd water it. She gave us a plant, she kept it alive. The Lord gives us salvation and he keeps us saved. How great is this? That you being rooted and grounded in this love. John Calvin said in his sermon on this passage, let us learn to to attribute the beginning, continuance, and the end of our salvation to God. Shun those devilish illusions which make you think that you deserve it. Calvin wrote, And notice the instrument used, that this would happen, that we would be rooted through faith. Faith is belief. Faith is trusting in something is true. Faith is relying on something to hold your weight. Faith has to do with resting in a certain reality or truth. The key to a stable life is faith and trust in Christ, which grows us or roots us in something specific, his love for us. Rooted and grounded in love. What love is this? Here we have the most important part, and it's the last point. We have the most important part of Paul's prayer. This is the most important feature of the passage. Paul asks God to give us a comprehension of the love that he has for us in Christ. And here's the thing. We cannot fully comprehend it. I don't know that we can even fully comprehend it in glory. But we certainly can't hear. But we can know it's true. And that to the degree that we grow in our comprehension at all, we're greatly impacted by it. It's that powerful. To be rooted and grounded in love, we must start with God's love for us in Christ. Then we move to love him 
and then we move to to love one another. Notice verse 18 and verse 19 where we see comprehending Christ's love leads to knowing and trusting God, to experience God in his fullest in glory. Paul's asking more, verse 17 into verse 18, that you, verse 18, may have strength, more strength, more ability, more energy now, to comprehend, to grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The prayer is for us to comprehend the love of Christ. I hope you see that. The love of Christ refers to his saving and his sustaining work in our lives. The love of Christ refers to his saving affection for us, his sustaining affection, his watch care over us. The love of Christ refers to not just lip service, it's something that is fully grounded and proven. It's not just somebody saying in an empty way, oh, I love you. How do you know? I'm not sure. I, uh, for real? Cannot be said about Christ. The love of Christ has been fully displayed and fully authenticated. When Paul becomes a believer, there's several years that go on before he works as an apostle. He ministers as an apostle. The first letter he writes is to the Galatian church who are dealing with an issue of legalism, thinking they were contributing something in some way to salvation. He's saying that's not the gospel. You're missing this. Let the love of God compel you. The love of God in Christ that's been manifested, that should wipe away any ideas of your holding on to your works. It's all based on his love for us in Christ. And he says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And listen to what Paul says is the rooting of this. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how the love of Christ is manifested to you? He gave himself for you. Nobody here can say he doesn't love you because he does, and he does so personally. It's true. Some of you may have somebody who died for you. In some general sense, I was just thinking of talking about the wars and so forth. In some general sense, service people in our country went and fought battles for us and gave their lives for their countrymen. But it wasn't personal the way Christ did it, and it wasn't ultimately redemptive like Jesus did it. And Jesus is confirmed in his resurrection. That Jesus died for you who trust in him. Your trust in him is an evidence of his love for you. And it cannot be denied. It is on full display. It does not matter how you feel about God's love. I mean, I want you to feel that affection. But he does love you. And he's given himself for you. This is what Paul grasped in his early in his walk. And this is what he prays for the Ephesians, for the readers, us today, that we would know the love of Christ for us. Because if we do we will start to love him in return. And when we learn, love him in return, we follow him. That's when we can have peace. That's when we have joy. That's when we can serve. That's when we obey because it's from loving him that comes from him loving us first. Then we could talk about loving each other. You can't talk about loving each other if we don't have this right understanding of being rooted and grounded in love. Much later in his ministry, he wrote to the Roman church, Paul did, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate display and proof of the love of God in Christ to us 
is Jesus dying for us. And the love of Christ is profoundly dynamic, and this is what Paul is saying in his prayer. It's not relegated to a simple feeling. It's multidimensional. Look at verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend. What? Comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. It's not a simple flat line, uh, static love. It is a dynamic love that covers all facets, all dimensions you could possibly imagine about love. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ? Fully dimensional. The breadth of Christ's love, as one commentator said, means that his love is so wide that it extends to all, all the nations. It's not just limited any longer. You see that in the whole of this book. Another commentator comments on the length of his love, that it reaches to eternity future and eternity past. The height of his love extends to the heavens where the angels can see this great salvation and give praise to him. His love goes so deep as to cancel hell itself because of what he has done by his love in Christ. His love is inexplicably dynamic, not fully explainable in human terms. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond what we know naturally. To fully appreciate the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love, we have to have God's aid, and this is what Paul prays for us, that God would give us aid. I am positive if you just know the love of God for you just a little bit more today, you will walk out of here much different. It it transforms how you view the world in eternity. What's more important? And guess what? One of the ways in which he gives you aid for this is what you're participating in right now, even as modified as it is. Look at verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. It is God's intention for us to revel in this love in communion with others. We can only go so far to appreciate the love of God and Christ to us on our own. But with all the saints together now, now we can start to improve in our comprehension of God's love for us and therefore love him back. We help each other comprehend this and love him in return. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. Fellow citizens together. Sinclair Ferguson, who I referred to earlier, I refer to again. He said, nor should we limit this to our own church fellowship or even to the contemporary church. He expands it. With all the saints doesn't just mean our church. He says, since it will take all of the saints in every age to express the fullness of Christ's love, to that extent, I need, we need every other Christian who has ever lived and ever shall live to help us understand the love of God in Christ. The whole people of God to understand this profound reality of Christ's love for us. And we, brothers and sisters, will spend eternity exploring the inexhaustible riches of God's grace and love to us in Christ. Of course we'll love him back. Of course we'll love him back. The final climactic petition is in verse 19. The end result of knowing the love of Christ. Verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God's fullness dwells in Christ. 
We are to go on being filled with the Spirit in this life and into eternity. It's an ultimate picture that won't be fully realized until that great day. God's fullness is the abundance of his grace that he bestows in Christ to us. God's fullness has to do with growing in his likeness. Such a prayer as this looks to our final state as the final answer. We shall finally become like Christ. Not in some deified sense, but that we may be so indwelt by the Lord that we will be filled to capacity with his spirit and with his love. What does it mean to know Christ's love? It means to know that he loves me, that he loves you. How do I know what kind of love this is? At the cross is where we learn how great his love for us really is. Comprehending or grasping the love of Christ will release you to glorify and enjoy God. One of my mentors and teachers is, was Brian Chapel in seminary, and he is the person that the Lord used to open my eyes up to the, the overriding message of the Bible for all its complexities, and there are many of them, and they're glorious. The overriding theme is Christ. The whole of the Bible is about God's redeeming man through Christ. The culmination of this Paul speaking of is God forms his church, this, living, this temple with living stones. But the whole of the Bible, wherever you open it up, that passage ties in some way to the person of Christ and what he will do. Sometimes it's the deficiency of man and man's leadership that drives us to look for Christ. Other times it's about the fulfillment of Christ and how we ought to live in light of it. But the whole of the Bible is the story of God's love for us in Christ, God's love for us to save us through Christ. This is the Christ-centered nature of the Bible, and I will always be grateful to Dr. Chapel for opening that reality up, the redemptive focus of God's Word. So I want to close with some words he says about this very feature of Ephesians chapter 3. Chapel wrote, when Christian leaders see this wonderful truth of Scripture, that power follows love, our calling becomes very clear. It is our duty, our privilege, our delight to engender in those that we want to grow in grace and holiness an ever greater love for Christ. How do we do this, Chapel asks. We engender, we leaders who are teaching and preaching this, but this can be true for any believer applying it in your own sphere of influence. How do we do this? We engender love the way the apostle does. We proclaim how great is Christ's love for us. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I close by praying like we have just read in your word, that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner beings. Lord, please do this by your Holy Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, will have the strength needed to comprehend with all the saints of all time what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love for us. Please do all of this so that we might be filled with all of your fullness and live for your glory in our joy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.